Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Willie, Harry, Stee, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three, one, two, three, Neds, Richard, two, Henry's four, five, six, then who? Edward's four, five, Dick the Bad, Harry's twain, and Ned the Lad. Mary, Bessie. Yes, we come to good Queen Bess, Elizabeth I, our second bona fide female monarch. Born in 1533, died in 1603, at what was a ripe old age for a monarch. She came to the throne in 1558 at the age of 25 and ruled for 45 years, one of our longest reigning monarchs. And her life was very well documented, so there's a lot to fit in, which means I'm going to run her story over two episodes. She was named after Elizabeth of York who was the daughter of Edward IV, who married Henry VII, making her the first Tudor queen consort. And Elizabeth's mother was, of course, Anne Boleyn. And as it turned out, Elizabeth, perhaps the greatest of the Tudor monarchs, was also the last. The Tudors had a relatively short reign. Famously, Elizabeth was known as the Virgin Queen. She didn't have any children. And whether or not she was going to get married and how she was going to deal with the succession took up a lot of energy in her lifetime. In many ways, just like her half-sister Mary and her half-brother Edward, she took after her father in many ways. She had his red hair, but she had also inherited his strength, his stubbornness, his strong-willed nature. She was a very forceful woman, and she had to be. She had a huge amount to contend with through her life. 
We looked at many earlier monarchs who grew up kind of not expecting to take the throne. For instance, King John, who was something like sixth in line of succession when he was young. And Elizabeth was in a, a similar position, although she had to keep her options open. There always was going to be a chance that she might end up on the throne. And just like Mary, she went through periods where she was declared illegitimate and therefore scratched from the line of succession. There were times where she was allowed to be legitimate, but was still kept out of the order of succession. And obviously, in the end, when her half-sister Mary died relatively young, Elizabeth came to the throne. So she had a huge amount to kind of juggle because right through the Tudor reign, we've seen how there were all these plots and counterplots, Protestants plotting against Catholics, Catholics against Protestants, supporters of Mary plotting against Elizabeth, supporters of Edward. I mean, everybody was kind of having a go at everybody else. And certainly in the reigns of Henry, Mary and Edward, life at court was pretty precarious. So many men, and indeed women, who were close to the throne in one way or another, either through blood or being part of the sort of uh, privy council, the ruling elite. So many of them were executed or murdered. And the fact that Elizabeth managed to navigate all that says a lot about her. And I mentioned before she had auburn hair, and she's one of those monarchs who is visually very familiar to us. There are many famous and indeed amazing paintings of her, portraits of her. Um, as she got older, she tightly controlled this visual propaganda. And when she commissioned paintings, if she didn't like it, she'd have it burnt. So she controlled her own image very carefully. And despite the fact that many of these paintings are kind of encrusted with all this iconography and deeper meaning of exactly what she's wearing and why and what jewellery she's wearing and what brooch she might have and um, what possessions she might have about her and what paintings are on the wall behind her. All of this meant something. So it's amazing that anything of her personality survived. But even behind all this front, you can still see in those paintings, you can still grasp a real woman. But she was a woman who throughout her life had sort of relied on different masks and different personae um, to start with, to protect herself, but later on to help her project the image that she wanted to. And I say it's a mask. I mean, it literally looks like a mask in some of the paintings. She started to wear heavy white makeup, almost like clown's face paint with bright red lips. And this is the sort of a sort of alabaster mask making her slightly statuesque. And she possibly started wearing all of this heavy makeup after she had contracted smallpox when she was in her early 30s. She would paint her face to disguise the scars that were on it. But then, as I say, as she got older, she tried to preserve herself as this perfect queen. And the historian Roy Strong described this as the mask of youth, which is a description that has stuck. And it was just one of her many masks and her many personae she was 
Princess Elizabeth. She was just plain Lady Elizabeth when she was no longer in line to the throne. And she was Queen Elizabeth. And then she was Gloriana. She was the Fairy Queen. She was the Virgin Queen. In some respects, she was also Britannia. The sort of cult of Britannia re-emerged in Elizabeth's reign. This depiction of Britain as this warrior woman with a shield and a trident, which was initially created by the Romans. But as I say, in Elizabeth's reign, she brought it back in a big way because she is trying to say, look, I am Britannia. I am your protector. And she's looking for a strong female prototype because, as with Mary, she was always fighting against the fact that she was a woman and people weren't used to having a woman on the throne. In 1558, the year of Queen Mary's death, the leader of the Protestant reform movement in Scotland and founder of the Presbyterian Church there, a guy called John Knox, published a famous book attacking the idea of women being given power. It was called The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. Now, Knox was, to my mind, a nasty piece of work, a proper granite-faced Puritan, usually depicted with a long grey beard. Like many male religious extremists who think they're saving the world, he had it in for women and believed their place was to be subordinate to men. You have to give it to him, no. That is a hell of a title, the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women. And it's sounded down the ages, even if the actual contents of his books aren't widely read these days. But in some ways, it's a title that's slightly misunderstood. By monstrous, he simply meant unnatural. And by regiment, he meant regimen or regime. So it was an attack on female monarchs, the unnatural rule of women. It was aimed both at Mary, Queen of Scots and Queen Mary of England. And once Elizabeth came to the throne, Knox added her to the list of women in power who shouldn't be there, according to the Bible and to John Knox. And Knox was only really spouting the general populist view of a patriarchal society. You can't have a woman sitting on the throne. Elizabeth was painfully aware of this. And there's a lot of talk about her body. She talks about her body herself. Other people talk about her body, her female body. And it's very interesting, this idea that she starts to brand herself as the Virgin Queen. And we'll see later why she came to do that, in many ways why she, why she had to do that. And the clue is in what happened to her half-sister Mary when she married the wrong person and it led to her, well, not exactly her downfall because she, she died of illness, but it meant that she was viewed very differently by the British people. And so on many occasions Elizabeth is, is referring to her body. And the interesting thing is that the main difference between Elizabeth and a man being on the throne, as the Tudors saw it, the main difference is that women have children and men don't. And the fact that Elizabeth didn't, you could perhaps say that that is because she wanted people to think of her in this male way and that having children might have weakened her. 
And as I say, the first mask we're aware of with Elizabeth is this white face paint, uh, which was called Venetian Ceruse, which was made of lead and vinegar and had to be cleaned off with a cleaning solution that included mercury. She also wore this sort of black coal around her eyes, which was made of more lead and antimony, and her red lipstick had heavy metals in it. So, ironically, in order to try to disguise the disease that she has had, she was probably poisoning herself even worse through all of these, uh, particularly the lead that would be absorbed into her skin and taken into her body. Le you know, lead is a very, very pernicious and, and poisonous substance because it has that ability to get inside us. And it leads to a number of medical conditions which Elizabeth may have suffered from. She certainly suffered from depression sometimes called the black dog, uh, the same black dog that snapped at the heels of Winston Churchill. Um, she referred to it as, as melancholy, as having bouts of melancholy, but she was prone to depression and this got worse and worse as she got older, which can happen with age, but it could also have been intensified by lead poisoning. So as I say, she was born in 1533 at Greenwich Palace, this palace that is no longer there. And her godfather was Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, who had dissolved Henry's first marriage to Catherine of Aragon and blessed the second to Anne Boleyn. And whilst Henry was very happy to have a daughter, she was also something of a disappointment because she wasn't a son. But she immediately displaced Mary as the next in line to the throne. Mary is 17 years old at this time. She's declared illegitimate. And until Henry has a son, which he does with Jane Seymour, Elizabeth is next in line to the throne. But as we know, Anne didn't last long in the king's affections. And when Elizabeth was only three, her mother was executed now, we can't really see this as this poor, desperate little girl being torn from her mother's arms as she's taken to the scaffold. Um, Elizabeth probably barely knew her mother. Children at the time would be brought up in other people's households and she would have governesses and, and tutors. She certainly wouldn't have been suckled by her own mother. But it must have been quite unstable as a childhood, particularly as Henry then goes on to marry four other different women as Elizabeth is growing up. And as I said before, the fact that she negotiated all this is pretty extraordinary. And you know, perhaps we can look at this as a starting point for her depression or anxiety, or you know, we see how much more research is done about this in children these days. Children who've had difficult upbringings, the psychological problems it, it leaves them in their lives. But apparently for the rest of her life, Elizabeth never mentioned her mother. So after Anne Boleyn is out of the way, um, Elizabeth is brought up for a while alongside her older sister Mary, who refused to acknowledge Elizabeth. As far as Mary was concerned, she was the rightful heir to the throne. Uh, and she doesn't seem to have been very warm to her to start with, but thawed as they got older, probably when they both were declared illegitimate, so they're both in the same boat. But this idea of whether they were legitimate 
or not and whether they were were in line for the succession. I mean, it's hard to know how seriously this was taken because it changed all the time, such as in 1544 when their father Henry restored them as heirs to the throne in the Succession Act. Now, significantly, this is after Edward has been born. So Henry's thinking, OK, I've got a son now. He's healthy and strong. He will reign for a good long while. Hopefully, he'll have sons of his own. But just in case, we've got Mary and Elizabeth there lined up if there is a disaster. So, as I say, an unsettled childhood, but um, Elizabeth at least would have had some continuity with her governesses. And it's very interesting how the upper classes get very attached to their governesses or their nannies. You know, we know about it even today with Prince Charles and his nanny, his mother, Queen Elizabeth, her nanny, Marion Crawford, Crawfy, who was sort of disowned when she published a book called The Little Princesses later in her life. And she was kicked out of her charitable house and never spoken of again by any of the royal family. Winston Churchill was famously very close to his nanny, Womb, and he had very, very neglectful parents. But probably the most significant governess that Elizabeth had, a woman who became a very close friend and lady of Elizabeth's bedchamber, was a young woman called Catherine Champernown, uh, or Champernown, better known by her married name of Kate Ashley or Cat Ashley. She joined Elizabeth's household in the 1540s and had a great influence on the young Elizabeth. And she was one of several strong women that Elizabeth surrounded herself with through her life. And her father seemed happy to support her properly. Because Elizabeth now had her own household and it was costing Henry a reasonable amount of money. And just like Mary before her, she was given a very good education, uh, particularly in languages that Elizabeth seemed to have a knack for. She was taught basic Latin, Greek, French and Italian, and she had a sort of um, passable speaking ability in Portuguese and low Dutch or Flemish, um, which is important. And we've looked in some of the previous episodes at how important this trade was with Antwerp and the Low Countries, and also how important it was to have allies there to try and stand up against the ever-expanding Habsburg Empire to the east in Germany, which was now moving into the Low Countries by taking over Burgundy through marriage. So I think Elizabeth was encouraged to learn these languages in case she married, say, a Dutchman. Later on in life, Elizabeth apparently learnt some Welsh and some Cornish so that she could converse with all of her subjects. And yeah, so languages seemed to be her thing. And in 1545, she made this present for her dad, which she wrote out and bound uh, as a New Year's gift. And it was her translation into Latin, French and Italian of a book of prayers and meditations that had been written by Catherine Parr, Henry's last wife. And, you know, that's quite an achievement for a young girl. So Elizabeth did have a really good education, but I'm not sure we could call her an intellectual. She wasn't particularly bookish 
And despite the fact that during her reign, which has become known as the Elizabethan era, this golden period, saw the eruption of the arts in the country, particularly literature, she was never a great patron of the arts. Um, this was a time of the flourishing of Shakespeare and Christopher Marlowe and poets like Edmund Spencer and Sir Philip Sidney, who was a poet as well as a courtier of Elizabeth. She tolerated them. She didn't do anything against them. She was never a patron of any of this, and she didn't seem to have a huge interest in it. When it comes to religion, it's quite hard to know exactly what path she took. And through her life, she had to keep kind of ducking and diving and dodging and weaving and, and, and swapping sides to keep on the right side. So when Edward's on the throne, she has to be a staunch Protestant. When Mary comes to the throne, she has to be a staunch Catholic. And then when she comes to the throne, she has to make the decision. She definitely pushes things in a Protestant direction. But as with Henry, I think it's quite hard to know exactly what her religious beliefs were. Some people have said she was an atheist, but maybe she just, despite everything that had happened through the Reformation, perhaps she wasn't particularly interested in religion. Although the big thing about her reign was that she constantly banged on about how this was God's will that she had come to the throne and that she, as head of the Church of England now, could be seen to almost be communicating directly with God. So God had got rid of Mary, had got rid of Edward in order to put Elizabeth in place. So she used God, she used his name, but she doesn't seem to be anywhere near as pious as her half-sister Mary. And it's interesting that one of the main differences of Protestant Catholicism is this idea of preaching sermons. Um, Elizabeth much preferred prayers. She preferred prayer books and saying prayers, listening to prayers, than sermons. Perhaps because she was slightly fearful of the power that these preachers had, particularly those that went out and would preach to crowds. You know, she could see this as um, being a slight threat if any of these preachers got too powerful and got too big a following, they might turn on her. So she's made it through these various marriages of her father, which must have been you know, bizarre for her to see her father constantly remarrying like that. It'd be like, I suppose, a child of um, Mick Jagger or Rupert Murdoch, I suppose, is more of a Henry VIII figure. What his children think of him and his behaviour, we may never know. But she's now happily ensconced in Catherine Parr's household, where she seems to have been very happy. But then her father dies in 1547. And Elizabeth is still only 14 years old. And she goes to live in the household of Catherine Parr, Henry's widow. And she seems to have liked it there. She was well looked after. Except that Catherine rather quickly remarried for the fourth time to this guy, Thomas Seymour, Baron Seymour of Sudley or Sudley, the younger brother of Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset, who on Henry's death, became the Lord Protector and Governor of Edward VI. And we look quite a lot at these two brothers. The sensible older brother, Edward, trying to, in effect, rule the country, and the younger brother, Thomas, feeling left out of things and constantly trying to undermine his older brother. 
But now there was some gossip, who knows if it was true, that before Thomas Seymour married Catherine Parr, he had proposed to the young Elizabeth, who had apparently turned him down as a bad bet, which he was. He was not a great husband to Catherine Parr. And he was constantly plotting against his older brother. And it looks like he may well have sexually abused the young Elizabeth. There is recorded evidence of uh, romps in Elizabeth's bedchamber where Thomas would rush in and start tickling the 14-year-old girl, sometimes joined by his wife, Catherine. So there was something very dodgy going on. And there's a really, really strange incident where they're, they're out in the garden where they're living in Hanworth in Middlesex. And Catherine holds young Elizabeth still while Thomas Seymour cuts her gown into a hundred pieces as a bit of a prank. You know, he seems a bit of a, uh, a jackass figure. But it went further than just pranks. And when it was reported to Catherine that Thomas had been seen embracing the young Elizabeth. So now Catherine sent Elizabeth away to live in the household of a man who had married Cat Ashley's sister. Cat Ashley still being Elizabeth's chief gentlewoman. But then Catherine Parr herself died not long afterwards in 1548 from complications of birth. And in 1549, Edward Seymour lost patience with his younger brother Thomas and had him arrested, claiming that he was conspiring against him and the king to try and take over. So Thomas Seymour is arrested, as is Cat Ashley. And they're accused of this conspiracy that Elizabeth is drawn into. The idea that Thomas is trying to put Elizabeth on the throne and then possibly have another go at marrying her. The truth behind all of this, who will ever know, because these people are interrogated very heavily, often tortured. And Cat Ashley and others came out with all this stuff about Elizabeth. Juicy uh, gossip, which historians have feasted on ever since. But we don't know the truth of any of it because Elizabeth said nothing. She kept her mouth shut. She gave nothing away and said, you know, I am a royal princess. You cannot speak to me like this. And she held out. You know, this is a first real demonstration of just how strong minded she was. And she's only 16 at this time. But she now has absolute first hand experience of what it's like to get caught up in all this plotting. So Elizabeth stands firm and survives this. Not everybody else is as lucky. Thomas Seymour is executed on the orders of his big brother. And not long after that, Edward Seymour himself is arrested and executed by other members of Parliament who believe that his handling of the country has gone disastrously wrong. And he's replaced at the top of the tree by John Dudley, Duke of Northumberland. At the time of his death, Edward Seymour had been building himself a huge house on the site of what is now Somerset House. Um, he was building a house called Somerset Place and Elizabeth moved into it. It was unfinished. It was a bit of a building site. She was never particularly happy there, except for one reason, because the guy that was looking after the house is the son of John Dudley called Sir Robert Dudley. 
Now, if you'll remember, the Dudleys came into the story when Henry VIII took the throne and he executed two of his father's chief tax collectors and most unpopular ministers, one of them being this man, Edmund Dudley. He was the father of the John Dudley, Duke of Northumberland, who was basically running the country alongside Edward VI. And his son was Sir Robert Dudley, later the Earl of Leicester, the guy who's looking after Somerset Place. And so Elizabeth is a teenager still. She got to know him very well. She sort of grew up alongside him and they definitely became very close. When Elizabeth's brother Edward died in 1533 and Mary came to the throne, this was pretty bad news for Elizabeth. She left the court for one of these other sort of royal residences, Ashbridge, accompanied by a retinue of about 500 gentlemen. It was, I suppose, a show of power, a show that she had support. It was a sort of warning to Mary saying, you know, leave me alone. I'm going to get out of your hair, but don't come up against me because I am popular. And she also sent a message to Mary asking her if she could send all the equipment she would need to celebrate mass. And I think this is an example of Elizabeth playing a new role, wearing a new mask, this one of being the devout Catholic. So Elizabeth is trying to keep out of trouble, keep out of the way, but Mary's only been on the throne for about a year when in 1554 there is this uprising against her, known as Wyatt's Rebellion. And we saw in the episode about Lady Jane Grey how her father Henry Grey joined this rebellion the rebellion was put down. Henry Grey was executed. Lady Jane Grey, who'd been held prisoner in the Tower, was executed, as was her husband, Lord Guildford Dudley, who was one of the other sons of John Dudley. So he was the brother of the Robert Dudley, who Elizabeth was very close to. And once again, Elizabeth is caught up in all this because Wyatt and the other rebels saying they're doing it on her behalf. They want to get rid of Mary, put Elizabeth on the throne and marry her to Edward Courtney, who is the last surviving member of the Yorkist line of the royal family, who at one point had been lined up as a husband for Mary before she decided to marry Philip instead. So Elizabeth, some historians say she probably was involved in this plot. She probably was dealing with the French working behind Mary's back because she probably knew that she'd never be safe as long as Mary was on the throne. She would always be a threat to her. But uh, she got away with it once again, despite the fact that many of Mary's own privy councillors advised her that Elizabeth was too dangerous to be allowed to live. Mary didn't have her executed, but she did have her arrested. Um, she spent a year under house arrest. Initially, she was put into the tower, but then she was moved to the royal palace in Woodstock near Oxford. And it was while Elizabeth was at Woodstock that Mary made the bad mistake of marrying Philip of Spain. And a few months later, Elizabeth is called to the court to witness the birth because they do want an actual royal witness there. If it goes well, then she can say, yes, this is definitely the daughter of Mary. If it goes badly, she would have to take over the throne. 
But as we saw before, Mary wasn't pregnant in the first place. This was a phantom pregnancy, perhaps a symptom of some internal problems that Mary suffered from. One courtier said it was all just a lot of wind, but it certainly left a bad smell in court. Philip is thinking, I've married this woman who's 10 years older than me. She's not ever going to give me a child. I need to start looking elsewhere. And he starts not exactly making a move on Elizabeth, but letting it be known that if anything should happen to Mary, he'd be there for her little sister. And so in some ways, Philip is instrumental in keeping Elizabeth alive and protected. He doesn't want anything to happen to her. She's his backup. And it's very interesting that through her life, Elizabeth was lined up to marry a whole number of different men. And this started when Henry was still alive, that he was thinking, who can we marry her to? What would be a good political marriage to kind of keep me in with the Europeans? One of the first names she was attached to was Emmanuel Philibert, Prince of Piedmont and Duke of Savoy. This would have been a very political marriage because Savoy is sort of sandwiched between the Habsburg Empire and the French Empire under the Valois monarchs. And so Philip of Spain thinks this would be a great marriage for him, would work well for him if Elizabeth did this. Philip is already starting to think of himself as King of England. So we've got Philip of Spain being a potential husband. We've got Emmanuel Philibert. She was also linked with King Eric of Sweden, Adolf, Duke of Holstein Gottorp. So we could have had a King Eric and a King Adolf. Uh, we could have had a King Frederick. She was briefly lined up to marry Frederick II, King of Denmark and Norway and Duke of Schleswig and Holstein. But then there was a possibility of a marriage directly into the northern branch of the Habsburg family with Emperor Ferdinand's sons, another Ferdinand and a Charles, who was uh, King Philip of Spain's cousin. That's Charles II, Archduke of Austria. And she was also lined up to marry some frogs, two of the French Valois princes. First of all, Henry, Duke of Anjou, and secondly, his brother, Francis, Duke of Anjou. And it seems that this was the marriage that came closest. She seemed to actually like Francis, Duke of Anjou. They corresponded a lot. He sent her an earring in the shape of a frog. I wasn't being entirely facetious when I called them frogs because she used to refer to Francis, Duke of Anjou, as her little frog. People aren't entirely sure why. And actually, I looked into um, why we call the French frogs and when it started. And like so many things, nobody really knows. But it does seem to go back quite a long way. But Elizabeth, in the end, as we know, didn't marry any of these men. None of these marriage prospects came to anything. And she said at one point, if I follow the inclination of my nature, it is this. Beggar woman and single, far rather than queen and married. But. Leaving aside Francis, Duke of Anjou, there was one man that she genuinely seemed to be in love with and probably would have liked to marry. And this is the Robert Dudley, son of John Dudley, Duke of Northumberland, who she had got to know when she was younger. And in order to make him a slightly better marriage prospect, she made him the Earl of Leicester. So he is sometimes called Leicester. And as I say, she was very, very fond of Robert Dudley and 
he was very fond of her and he was very fond of the idea of being king. Unfortunately, he was married to a woman called Amy. But she got ill, uh, probably with breast cancer, and then fell down the stairs in slightly suspicious circumstances. Dudley was not accused of her murder, but a lot of people suspected that that's what he'd done. He'd given her a little shove so that he could marry Elizabeth. But Elizabeth, at this point, is starting to think, I don't know, this is not necessarily the right thing to do. She'd seen all these plots in court. She'd seen what happened if you married the wrong man. She'd seen how that man would often try and take too much power, piss off the rest of the ruling council, and it would lead to civil war, murder, assassination, bloodshed, whatever. And so she sort of kept Dudley hanging on. And I'm going to telescope time a little bit here, but eventually he got fed up with waiting and married this woman called, bizarrely, Lettuce Nollies. Well, I mean, it it looks like Lettuce Nollies on the page. It could well be Lettuce Knowles. So anyway, I mean, Elizabeth had kept him waiting too long, put him off for too long. She never forgave him for marrying Lettice. And it looks like a case of cold feet. Certainly, there are a lot of members of the government who are saying, no, 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 do not marry this man. Instead, she tried to get him married off to Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, Mary, Queen of Scots wasn't going for that. But Mary, Queen of Scots herself was making some bad marriages based on her heart rather than her head. And perhaps you could say that Mary followed her heart too much and Elizabeth followed her head too much. Now, we don't have time to fit Mary, Queen of Scots' story into this episode, so I'm going to hive her off into a separate episode. We'll deal with Mary, Queen of Scots. She was never an English queen, but her son, James VI of Scotland, became James I of England. So she's a very important figure, but there's a lot that went on in her life, so we're going to deal with that separately. But just so you know, as a descendant of Henry VII, Mary had a valid claim on the English throne. However, she screwed it right up, made a series of bad blunders. She upset the wrong people, including John Knox, who preached against her. In the end, when Elizabeth was on the throne, the Scottish people turned against Mary and she had to do a runner. She came down to England and sort of, sort of well, I mean, I would say threw herself at the feet of Elizabeth, but the two of them never met. She threw herself on Elizabeth's mercy and said, look, please, please, can you look after me and keep me safe? At which point Elizabeth said, sure, I'll keep you safe and locked her up for 20 years. But all that is yet to come. So anyway, in 1558, Elizabeth's big sister, her half-sister, Queen Mary I of England, died. Elizabeth was officially the next in line to the throne. It wasn't disputed. And on Sunday, the 15th of January, 1559, she held her coronation. Now, I'm giving you the full date there because apparently it was decided on by her slightly mysterious advisor, Dr. John Dee, who was a scientist, but also an astrologer. And he was following astrological advice that this was the best date for Elizabeth to come to the throne. And perhaps he was right, because she did have a long and largely successful rule. So maybe there's something in this astrology business. It was an expensive coronation. 
Elizabeth spent £16,000 of her own money, which is a huge amount. And so no expense was spared. Everything was there except for an Archbishop of Canterbury. A lot of the top bishops had died off or been set on fire by Mary. And there doesn't seem to have been an Archbishop of Canterbury around. So a guy called Owen Oglethorpe, the Bishop of Carlisle, carried out the crowning ceremony. And I'm going to leave Elizabeth there. We don't have time to fit everything into one episode. Uh, She did have such a fascinating life that I'm going to split Elizabeth into two. And to help me navigate all this, it's a great pleasure to welcome back Tracy Borman, who kind of introduced us to the Tudors back before we did Henry VII. And at the time, she said, please, 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 could I let her do Elizabeth I? And of course, I said yes. So join me and Tracy after the break. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. And to talk us through Elizabeth's life, I am delighted to have the return of the wonderful Tracy Borman. Tracy, who kind of introduced us to the Tudors with a special Tudor episode before Henry VII. And I suppose it makes sense that uh, you can help us say goodbye to the Tudors, Tracy. (laughs) I suppose there is a symmetry to that, Charlie. And uh, the joy of it is, of course, Elizabeth is my all-time favourite. She's the reason I became a historian in the first place. So always very happy to wax lyrical about her. I mean, what was it about Elizabeth that so inspired you and obviously still does inspire you? I think she was just remarkable. There's a sort of English love of the underdog and she's one of the ultimate underdogs in history. I mean, she was you know, just the forgotten younger daughter of Henry VIII, whom he'd bastardised having had his marriage to Elizabeth's mother, Anne Boleyn, annulled. So nobody would have put any money on Elizabeth becoming queen, or if she managed that, holding onto her throne, uh, because half of her country thought she was a heretic and illegitimate. The other half didn't really want a woman on the throne. And yet she confounded expectations and I think made England fall in love with queens, which the likes of the second Elizabeth, um, amongst others, had cause to be grateful for. Well, I mean, for the most part, the queens have done a better job than the kings. Yeah, they have. <laughs> Maybe our expectations are lower, you see, with the women in charge. They certainly were in history. but And also they, I think, tapped into this image of being the mother of their people and, and made a virtue of their their gender in that way, really. That was certainly a big part of Elizabeth's PR. 
you know, I, I am married to England, she said, when under mm. to marry somebody else. Um, and my people are my children. And I think that was quite a clever way of, of celebrating her gender. So, I mean, did she have a lot to kind of turn around after Mary? How unpopular was Mary actually at the time? I know that sort of later Protestant historians have, have painted her with, in quite dark colours, but at the, at the time, how did it go? She wasn't the greatest queen. And now I'm going to make myself unpopular by saying this because um, <laughs> there are some uh, very determined um, pro-Mary scholars out there. But her reign was you know, unquestionably brief. Uh, it was just five years um, and it was violent. She's gone down in history as Bloody Mary because of burning the, uh, the Protestant heretics um, she made a mistake by marrying, uh, well, marrying at all, arguably, but but marrying um, a foreigner in the eyes of her xenophobic mm. English people. She married the King of Spain, um, and that was deeply unpopular. So she sort of made this a series of mistakes, really, um, and ultimately was judged by her body. She didn't um, she didn't produce an heir, and so the throne passed to her sister Elizabeth and. There was sort of great wringing of hands about that because nobody thought that she was going to do any better. Um, and Mary had been preceded by another very, very short reigning queen, Lady Jane Grey. Mm. So now third queen in a row, sense of despair, I think, among the people of England. So expectations were low and perhaps that was in Elizabeth's favour. I think it's always easier to come in and and confound expectations uh, really, rather than have to live up to them. But I mean, I did read somewhere saying that Mary only ruled for five years. And if you took the first five years of Elizabeth's reign, if she died at that point, you might have thought, well, she was equally rubbish. Is is there, is there any fairness in that? I think that's very fair. It does take a little while to uh, establish yourself as monarch. And you definitely sense that, you know, actually a good 20 years were needed in Elizabeth's case. It was really only in the 1570s that she starts to come into her own and she's much more confident in her queenship. And that's when the whole cult of Elizabeth and Gloriana, the Virgin Queen, you start to see the beginnings of that. So I think it's actually quite a fair point. The first five or so years were very difficult for Elizabeth. She had a lot of rival claimants, interestingly, mostly women, uh, Mary, Queen mm. of Scots being the most serious of those. Um, Spain was always a threat. Uh, religion was still a contentious issue. So she was still really trying to establish herself. Um, so, yeah, if she'd been cut short then, we probably would be looking at her in a similar way to Mary. And she almost was, because in 1562, uh, Elizabeth was staying at Hampton Court when she contracted smallpox, one of the deadliest diseases of the age, and she almost died. Uh, but uh, she came through it and then was furious with her council for meeting and debating who was going to take over. You know, so they were in big trouble after that. Okay, so we'll we'll come to all that in the next episode. But is it fair to say that compared to the other Tudors, Elizabeth's court does seem to have been a slightly safer place than previous monarchs? She didn't seem to have bumped off or arrested and, or executed as many people around her in a sort of close royal circle, as it were. 
Well, I think this is when some of your listeners will be writing in if I defend Elizabeth here and say, no, actually, taken all together, she was bloodier than Mary. She executed more people than Mary. Well, that's possibly true, but over a 44-year reign rather right. than a five-year one. Are those people close to her at court? They're mostly Catholic rebels and plotters right. because um, in the early 1570s, the Pope excommunicated Elizabeth and actively encouraged her subjects to rise up against her and assassinate her. So the tower was suddenly filled with Catholic plotters. Um, right. So it was mostly that kind of um, prisoner who was put to death. She wasn't like her father. Um, if you were a favourite of hers, with a couple of notable exceptions, you could feel pretty safe. So, yeah, her court... Right was absolutely more settled. It was a safer place to be than that of her predecessors. And she did seem to have negotiated this idea of having a female on the throne better than Mary. She seemed to get it accepted that it's OK to have a queen. But, I mean, that wasn't easy at all, was it? The very year that she came to the throne, John Knox, uh, this sort of firebrand preacher, uh, declared it was monstrous for a woman to bear rule over men. And so she had all this prejudice to confront. And rather than being conventional about it, like her sister Mary, and immediately taking a husband so he could run the show, she did the exact opposite. And in the first parliament of her reign declared, I shall live and die a virgin. Shocking. Nobody believed her. Um, she's just saying that to kind of heighten her value on the marriage market. Um, but of course, it soon became clear she really did mean it. She wasn't going to marry. My favourite quote of Elizabeth <laughs> is, I will have but one mistress here and no master. I mean, it's interesting that before starting this series, if I'd been asked who was my least favourite monarch, Mary would have been a very strong contender. But having found out more about her and taken on board what she had to fight against and what she had to put up with and how she was portrayed by Protestant historians and dyed-in-the-wool patriarchs like John Knox, and then seeing how Elizabeth had to fight many of the same battles, you do realise that there's a great deal of misogyny behind the popular image of Mary, isn't there? I mean, John Knox was basically saying... The very idea of a woman on the throne was against God. Against God, because women were considered second-class citizens and, and inferior in every single way, physically, mentally, spiritually. Uh, they utterly depended on the men in their life, whether that was husbands, fathers, brothers. Uh, they really had no freedom of will. They couldn't inherit property. They couldn't really have a job, kind of support themselves independently. It was a rare thing to find a woman living off her own means in the Tudor period. And Elizabeth seemed to slightly play on that. She did. The idea of, I am a woman, but... Yes, yes. It's quite sort of misleading to say that Elizabeth was a feminist. She wasn't, mm. um, anachronistic term anyway, but um, she sort of seemed to see herself as the shining exception to the rule. Um, and so she wasn't saying, look, all women are great. Uh, you've got to be much nicer to them, more respectful. She's basically quite rude about women um, and sets herself up as being the very opposite to that. So aren't I remarkable because most women are rubbish? Words to that effect anyway. Yeah. And then, as you say, she plays on this idea of I am the mother to all of you, and yes. that would have been spoiled if I'd had 
my own child. Yes, I love that. It's a very clever way of of twisting the whole um, idea about marriage because this was the burning issue of the day when Elizabeth came to the throne. Who's she going to marry? Of course she's going to marry. And and there's this kind of gradual sense of first disbelief, then then shock and horror that actually she's got no intention of marrying. So she, the fact that she turns that into a virtue and that as her reign goes on, she's celebrated as the Virgin Queen. Uh, I think that's a stroke of genius, actually, on her part. I mean, she 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 looked like she almost came close to marrying two people, Dudley and the Frog. Um, well, I'm allowed to say that because that's, that's her nickname him. for him, yeah. Duke of Anjou. Yes, yes, great because I can never remember his proper name, <laughs> Duke of Anjou and Alanson, I think. But yeah, yes. again, and she does seem to be rather fond of him. She was genuinely fond. Of uh, of Anjou, her little frog, as she called, um, and this courtship sort of happened when Elizabeth was sort of in her mid to late forties. Um, mm. So, you know, pretty much getting beyond childbearing years. Um, it was sort of her last throw of the dice, certainly in terms of an international marriage. But um, in contrast to her other international suitors, Anjou actually came over and spent time with Elizabeth. Now he was much younger than her. But there was this flirtation between them. I think there was genuine affection. And Elizabeth was really very upset when when the whole thing came to nothing, even though it was thanks to her it came to nothing. But she was certainly upset to say goodbye. And she wrote this poem on Monsieur's departure. Um, <laughs> and I think something ended there for Elizabeth. And she did sort of mourn it. Because I think much as she was determined not to marry, she loved to pretend and she loved mm. these various suitors in play. And it was a bit of a masterstroke, really, because that's what diplomacy was all about. And there's a lovely painting of him mm -hmm. where, it, 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 you know, you, you really feel that you, you, you know him from looking at that painting. Yes, yes, absolutely. He's, he's certainly got charisma. He's got a twinkle <laughs> in his eye, I think, in that <laughs> painting. So you can see what Elizabeth saw in him, I think. So, so what about Dudley then? I mean, I mean, you know, she kept his last letter. She did. Oh, thank you for mentioning that because it's my favourite among the many amazing documents in the National Archives. It's this letter that um, Robert Dudley wrote to her just days before he died in 1588, not long after the Armada. And now they'd known each other for 50 years. And this was a friendship forged in adversity. They'd both been prisoners in the tower. They'd been through a lot together. And I do think genuinely they were devoted to each other. I don't think it was a sexual relationship, but they loved each other. Um, and uh, Dudley, when, you know, as I mentioned, he, he didn't have long to live. He wrote to Elizabeth. It wasn't a very interesting letter. Um, <laughs> he's just thanking her for some medicine that she sent and inquiring after her health. But what for me makes it one of the most precious letters of all time is that Elizabeth in her own hand has inscribed it, his last letter. And she kept mm. it in a locked casket by her bed for the rest of her life. Well, I think that says a lot. It does say a lot. <laughs> Do you know, I love as well, they tended to spell phonetically and letter yeah. is spelt A-R. So his last letter. <laughs> his last letter. But I've got ahead of myself here again, Tracy. That's all to come in the next episode. Can we just go back and look a little bit at Elizabeth's childhood? I said earlier that 
it's a miracle that she she navigated her way through through everything that was going on and and came through relatively unscathed although she did suffer from depression through her life and whether that could have been triggered or made worse by it yeah absolutely i think she did have these sort of psychosomatic illnesses really she she suffered with stomach pains um sort of fainting fits um migraines depression and i think a lot of that could be traced back to the trauma um of her youth obviously her mother being executed mm. when elizabeth wasn't even 3 years old um and then she saw another stepmother go the same way um and then there was the sort of disastrous marriage of her sister mary and elizabeth ending up a prisoner in the tower during mary's reign so traumatic and i think a childhood like that well it probably sends you one of two ways principally you either it either hardens you and makes you resilient or it destroys you um and i think it certainly was the former with elizabeth she learned so much so that she was um a very skillful young woman very shrewd uh, by the time she became queen because she'd been sort of chiseled into this in the ultimate school of hard knocks that she suffered mm. as a child. Yes, there's this idea, isn't there? And it's a bit simplistic, a bit pop science, but some psychologists say that children grow into either orchids, dandelions or tulips. The orchids being the sort of oversensitive, least resilient group. Uh, dandelions being the toughest, they're the survivors. And the rest of us are tulips, somewhere in between. And I guess you'd say Elizabeth was a dandelion. I think there's a contrast to be made there between Elizabeth and her greatest rival, Mary, Queen of Scots, who was the ultimate pampered princess, you know, raised and adored in France, thought, oh, it's just easy being queen, and then realised it really wasn't and made an absolute mess of it in Scotland, um, marrying among her various husbands, the man suspected of murdering her second husband and then losing control. And I know what I'll do. I'll throw myself on Elizabeth's mercy and and she'll help me. Of course, Elizabeth wasted no time in imprisoning Mary. And Elizabeth obviously learned a lot from, from Mary's mistakes, such as don't get married. Yes. Don't get married. Don't upset the powerful lords of your government. Uh, yeah. Don't let the heart lead always let the head be in charge. I think that was really Elizabeth's mm. mantra. And the, the other thing that I'm fascinated by is what went on with Thomas Seymour when mm. she was in Catherine Parr's household. Yeah. Um, as I've seen, you know, some people say, well, she was almost undoubtedly um, the victim of sexual abuse. Mm. I mean, obviously we don't know the full facts, but I mean... We don't. That's how it appears to 21st century eyes, I think, yes. and for good reason. Um, so Elizabeth moved in with her last stepmother, Catherine Parr, and Catherine's new husband, Thomas Seymour, after Henry VIII's death. Thomas Seymour proved anything but a faithful husband. He soon started paying, I think we can just call it inappropriate attention, uh, towards his new stepdaughter, um, bursting into her bedchamber in the mornings before she was up and dressed and tickling her in bed and then on another occasion cutting a gown she was wearing into a hundred pieces something happened in that household that caused Catherine Parr to be suspicious because she'd gone along with all of this for a while 
But then she caught Elizabeth and her husband in some kind of compromising position, mm-hmm. and it resulted in Elizabeth being asked to leave. So had there been a full affair? Um, I personally doubt it. Uh, but certainly Seymour was not behaving as he should. Um, and I think this this sort of scarred Elizabeth as well. She'd learned of the dangers of even just thoughtless affairs or flirtations. I think she was actually very attracted to Seymour. And you do see her later love interests, if you like. They they, they bear a bit of a resemblance to Thomas Seymour, as you mm. say, the ultimate bad boy. But it's all deeply disturbing because Elizabeth was only about 13 at the time. We would definitely call it child abuse. But this was an age where women were often married um, and actually gave birth at the age of 13. So different things, Mm. I think. Yes. I mean, it's always hard in history not to try and impose modern attitudes and thought processes onto people who often thought very, very differently. Absolutely. Yeah. So, but whatever happened... I don't think it was a full-blown affair, um, as has recently been depicted on a, our screens. Uh, this whole story has been dramatised recently. Which version was that? It was Becoming Elizabeth was a, a drama which um, was shown on Channel 4 uh, recently. Right. And um, and it definitely went down the path of a full-blown romantic affair between yeah. Elizabeth. Well, that's what um, that's what happens on TV. Indeed. It's the Peter, Peter Morgan approach to history, as we've seen in The Crown. Yes, exactly. You can look at the actual sober historical version or you can go with the salacious gossip. Yeah. And let's go with the salacious gossip. It's going to make more fun. Too yeah, well. yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, Elizabeth is, you know, has been depicted so many times in books, films, TV series. Um, she's such an endlessly fascinating character. She's so fascinating. And getting to the real Elizabeth, is a challenge as well because her image is everything really she's the most yeah. brilliant propagandist i think we've seen throughout the history of the monarchy uh, as i say turning the alarm at her virgin state into a into a virtue to be celebrated she made the most of things like the armada becoming really a legend in her own lifetime but who was the real elizabeth i think she was deeply troubled uh, very frightened at times um traumatized by what she had experienced but as i said this trauma actually made her very very resilient and very shrewd and both of those qualities i think helped to secure what we can say was i think the most successful of the tudor reigns it Mm. wasn't quite the golden age that it was depicted but she did a pretty good job of it and of course she steered the country back to protestantism but but was that for political reasons, personal reasons, or religious reasons? What What do we know about what she actually believed? I know she kept saying, I am here by the will of God, and pushing that angle. But I mean, she doesn't, doesn't really come across to me as having been a particularly pious person. I think Elizabeth cared very much about religion. I think it was a God-fearing age, and Elizabeth had been raised in the Reformed faith, I think largely thanks to her mother, Anne Boleyn, who was a great reformer. That said, Elizabeth had learned enough from the examples of the past and notably her sister, Mary, um, that actually pragmatism was called for uh, in religion. And that's one of the things I admire most about Elizabeth. She was a a great pragmatist. Um, And so 
she never said this famous quote about not wishing to make windows into men's souls. That was uh, Francis Bacon, I think. But it neatly summarised her approach to religion. In other words, if you outwardly conform, you can kind of believe as you like uh, in the privacy of your home. Um, and so she did, um, just a year into her reign, uh, forge this religious settlement. It didn't please everybody, but it did at least establish a workable compromise. And that was quite an achievement, given what had gone before with rebellion, with burnings, with the violence and the, uh, you know, the, the um, hostility between Catholics and Protestants. She, she did calm the situation. I think she was probably, if I'm going to put a percentage on it, about 80% Protestant. But there was, she did rather like some of the old Catholic rituals and elements. And she sort of kept those in her own private chapel, her own private worship. Some of the decorations that used to um, embellish the churches uh, across England, she kept those. She also had friends who were Catholics. So she didn't stand on ceremony, I think. Well, thank you very much, Tracy, for taking us through the, the first part of Elizabeth's life. And in the next episode, we'll look at what happens when she comes to the throne. And I hope you can come back then, Tracy, and carry on guiding me through this extraordinary story. I would love to. I can't wait because it just gets better and better when it comes. <laughs> That's what we like. A good plug for the next episode. <laughs> thank you very much. That was Tracy Borman, author of many books on the Tudors, including her most recent on Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, the mother and daughter who changed history. And she also has her own story of the monarchy, which was out in 2021, called Crown and Scepter. And in case writing all that doesn't keep her busy enough, she is Joint Chief Curator of Historic Royal Palaces alongside Lucy Worsley. And Tracy will be returning for the next episode, as I hope will you. So like, subscribe, leave favourable comments, tell your friends, have a fly past with a banner, whatever. Just don't forget to come back for the next episode where we'll see what happens when Elizabeth comes to the throne. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023.